morning we're going to be looking, we're going to be continuing our, our series of Relentless Pursuit, that idea of Relentless Pursuit as we pursue Jesus. And I'm going to let you sit in a moment. Um, I'm going to pray and, and then we can sit and begin the message. But right now we're going to move through, it's a parallel passage. And so it occurs in a couple places. You're in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm going to be in Mark specifically, but it's a passage in three places. So because it's in three places, before we begin and read scripture, let's just pray. God, you alone are worthy, worthy, worthy. And so, Father, we, we fall at your feet and we worship you, and we also rise in celebration of who you are and stand to give you our praise. And really, we could do this every second of our lives, and it still wouldn't be enough to adequately express how worthy you are of our worship. And so, Father, as we prepare this time, or prepare to enter this time of studying your word, God, we ask that you would lead it that it would be a continuation of the worship that we just engaged in, that this wouldn't be a, a change from that, but just a continuation of worshiping you as we submit to your word, as we submit to what you have given us, to what you have taught us, and what you are teaching us through your word, as we, as we submit to the model of Jesus. We thank you for your word, that we can see how Jesus lived. We can see how he conducted his ministry. Father, teach us to be like Jesus in every way. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So it's in these three passages. I'm going to be, I'm going to be focusing on Mark 10, 32 through 45. And there's a couple key ideas in this. So Jesus, as we go through this, Jesus, he uh, introduces his death for the third time. And he kind of foretells, he's once again, he's perpetually telling his disciples this is what's about to happen. He continues to do it. But then he also sets the standard of servanthood. And so I really want to look at kind of those two ideas, right? What Jesus is telling his disciples, but then also what Jesus is modeling for his disciples and what he's showing them. So this is Mark 10, 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to him, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared." And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever should be great among you first must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the first thing I want to point out in that section, the first thing that just jumped out to me, remember how many times have I said every detail in Scripture is there for a reason. Everything is there deliberately. 
And make no mistake, don't skip over verses in Scripture, because this is how that passage starts. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And then listen to this phrase. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Why is that in there? Why, why, why does that have to be included? It isn't enough to know. Jesus, at this point in the chronology of Jesus' ministry, he is marching towards Jerusalem for Passion Week, for Holy Week. He is, every step is taking him closer to his death. And so this detail is in there of those who followed him were amazed and afraid. And I love that because keep in mind, they knew the context of his ministry. And so we have to know the context of his ministry. They knew how angry the rulers were at him and how much they hated him and the vitriol they had for Jesus and what they were planning to do with them. Listen, this is a few chapters earlier in John, but when you look at the timeline of Jesus' ministry, this is maybe a week or two earlier. John 11, 8 and 16, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again to Judea, to, to the whole area that Jerusalem was in? The Jews were just seeking to kill you. It, and you want to go back there? What's going on? And then it goes on to say in John eleven sixteen. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I mean, the 12, the apostles, they get it. They understand. They're like, okay, Jesus is going towards his death. And it says those who followed him were amazed and afraid. Why? Because they probably, like Thomas, assumed all right, well, if he's going towards his death and we're with him, then we're marching towards our death. Every step we take in this journey is taking us closer to our death. Why is he doing this? There's amazement at Jesus' actions and behavior. And then there's also a little bit of fear in the following him. Like, okay, is this, are we imminently approaching the end of our own lives as we follow him? Because he is choosing to go to the place that they want to kill him. I mean, how many of you guys, if you were talking to me, right, and you're like, oh, hey, do you have any plans for the summer? I was like, yeah, you know, we're going to go out uh, to, to Pennsylvania. Um, oh, to where your parents live? No, a different town. Oh, cool. Why are you going to that town? Oh, well, so that they can flog me and mock me and spit on me and beat me and kill me. How many of you would be like, yeah, that makes sense. That's what I do most summers. Wouldn't there be a little bit of amazement? Like, wait, why, why is he going where he knows they want to kill him? And see, the lesson, even in this little example, is that Jesus was always perfectly submitted to the will of God. He modeled this submission, right? He was always submitted to the will and plan of God. And because of that, his behavior did not always make sense to the people around him. And so the question that I have to ask myself, and I want us to ask ourselves, is does our behavior make sense to the people around us? Does the world around us who is not in submission to God's will, do they look at us and what we do make sense? I submit to you that if the world who is not following God's will looks at your life and everything you do makes total sense to them, you're missing the point. If the world who is not in submission to the will of God in everything, looks at your behavior, looks at the way you treat people, looks at your marriage, looks at your relationship with your kids, the way you work for a boss. If the world not in submission to God's will looks at your life and is like, yeah, I, I get every single thing they do. That makes sense to me. I, I would posit that there's a real issue with that. I have to wonder, does my life not make sense to the world around me who doesn't know Jesus and is not submitted to the will of God? 
Dave Lane, the current district superintendent for the Alliance, in a sermon a couple years ago uh, that I listened to, he was talking about this, and I think he summarized it so beautifully. He said, give people grace they don't deserve. Shock them with kindness and point people refreshed by their encounter with us to God. He's talking about this idea of amaze the people around you. When the people around you observe your behavior, let it be so counterintuitive to what they're used to that it, it shocks them, it surprises them, right? Give them grace they don't deserve. Blow them away with kindness so that when the world sees us, they are amazed by our behavior. What is up with that guy? He is intentionally marching forward towards his death. There must be something to this person they call Jesus. What is up with Joe? He is nice to the worst people at work. He gets ridiculed by the boss. He gets mistreated by the boss. And he is nothing but gracious and respectful. What? I, I don't understand his behavior. Sarah is so kind. It doesn't matter how rude people are to him. She responds with kindness. She is so generous. It doesn't matter how tough things are. She is going to look for ways to love and serve. I see that and that doesn't make sense to me. What's up with her? The people who were following Jesus, the crowd observing him, they were amazed at his actions. And church, I got to ask, are people amazed at our actions? Or does our behavior make total sense to a world not submitted to God's will? But then even in this, so you would think, right, the apostles, they've been following Jesus for, you know, three years now. Especially these 12. They've had an opportunity to observe him and learn from him far more than anyone else. Surely they've got the point by now. Surely they understand that. Surely at this time, with this much exposure to Jesus, there's no way they're still making the same mistakes over and over again, right? And I say this not to bash the apostles, but I say this to remind us that there is never a point where we can say, okay, well, I've been exposed to Jesus enough. There's no way I'm going to make a mistake again. Right? Like at this point, I know what I'm doing. I'm good. I don't need to be on guard. I don't need to watch my heart. I've been, I've been going to church for 50 years, Sam. I've been a Christian for 70 years. I know what I'm doing at this point, right? And we let our guards down, but we can't because watch the apostles. Because the apostles, James and John, I mean, two of the most famous beloved apostles, we still see that they demonstrate a recurring problem for the apostles. What do they say? James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This isn't a posture of, Lord, if it's your will, will you? It's like, no, 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 this is what I want from you, Jesus. This is what I want. Jesus says, okay, well, what is it that you want from me? And then they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. What they were asking for is the highest position of honor. So they got that Jesus was in the ultimate throne of honor. They got that Jesus was in the primary seat of the guest of honor. But then what they were saying is, okay, well, the very next rung... Yeah, reserve that for us, right? Like put up a little placard that says, no, this spot is reserved for James and John. We want everybody to know. We want everybody at the, at the celebration feast to see us sitting at the right hand and left hand of the guest of honor. We want people to realize how important we are. They ask this of Jesus. Leading up to his death, they've been with him for three years. They've seen what he's modeled. They've heard what he's taught. And this is still what they're asking him. And again, this is not like a, well, maybe it was just a one-time. No, this was a regular part 
of their interactions with Jesus. Matthew 18, 1, or Luke 9, 46 through 47, it's the same encounter. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they were arguing about it. They were disputing, I'm better than you. Jesus, hey, come on, tell, you know, tell Peter that I know he's Peter, but I'm better than Peter. And Peter's saying, no, 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 tell, tell them I'm the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes they were bold with it, and they went to Jesus, and they were like, look, settle this debate for us. Tell us which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There were other times where they argued about it, but they didn't want Jesus to know, and they tried to hide it. Mark 9.34, but they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. This is preceding that. Jesus says, hey guys, what are you talking about? Jesus knows, right? Jesus asks, hey guys, what are you talking about? And it says, uh, but they kept silent because they had been arguing about who was the greatest. And this happens after they'd already said to Jesus, hey Jesus, tell us who's going to be the greatest. He says, no, that's not how it works. Jesus, who's going to be greatest? No, guys, that's not how it works. A week later, a month later, I don't have the exact chronology memorized. But later, after that first conversation about Jesus, tell us who's the greatest, and Jesus says that's not how it works. They get into this argument again, and Jesus says, hey, guys, what are you talking about? You know, the weather, stuff like that. Definitely not what you instructed us in a little bit ago. Definitely haven't gone back to that argument about who's the greatest. And Jesus calls them out on it. Because again, it's not about the exterior. It's not about, oh, well, if I don't tell God, he won't know what I'm wrestling with. Right? If I just, if I just don't tell God, then he'll think I'm doing everything right. No, God knows everything. I mean, Luke 8, 47, Luke 8, 17, when the woman saw that she was not hidden from Jesus, Jesus says, for nothing that is hidden will not be made manifest, nor anything secret will not be known and come to light. For Samuel 2, 3 and 16, 7 for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The Lord looks on the heart. See, it's not about the facade that we present to Jesus. You might be able to show up every single Sunday and sit in these chairs, and everybody thinks, man, that, that is the most dedicated follower of Christ I know. That person's whole life is like, look at them. They're the first ones here. They're singing as loud as anyone, right? Like, oh man, that, that is someone who's got it. God looks at the heart. God's concerned with the internal reality of the heart. And here, James and John reveal this heart. And again, they do this. They do this. This is leading up to Jerusalem. This is leading up to Holy Week. They come to Jesus and they say, hey, grant us the positions of maximum honor. And Jesus says, no, that's not the point. We've talked about this. You've missed it once again. Okay, well, now they get it, right? Like, now they understand. I mean, we're, we're like 10 days left in Jesus' life. Now they finally get it, right? Surely at the Last Supper, their last group event with Jesus, there's no way this comes back up. Luke 22, 24 through 26. A dispute, not a conversation, not a fun A or B, not like a, hey, let's just, you know, for, for fun, let's talk about this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And this is after Jesus has washed their feet. I mean, this is a problem over and over and over again for the apostles. Because that ego inside of us is such a monster. That desire to be known as the best. Right? I want people to know how good I am. It continually rears its head within this group of apostles. 
And it's something that we have to be on guard against in our own lives. Because Jesus coming out of this, he says, and he says again, what he says here on the road to Jerusalem, he repeats at the Last Supper, he says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. Every time this egocentric question arose, every time the disciples, the apostles, the 12 apostles wanted to see themselves exalted, Jesus had to remind them that no, greatness is not about personal exaltation. Greatness is in how you serve. And the reason I'm stressing this point, the reason, I mean, we're, we're, we're stressing this, how many times the apostles wrestled with this, is we're wrapping up our series on Jesus, on Jesus' life and his ministry. Right? We're right outside of Holy Week at this point. So we don't have a lot left in this series on Jesus' ministry. And coming out of this series on Jesus' ministry, we're going to look at Jesus' bride, the church. The last thing that Jesus did in his time, his physical time on earth, before he comes back in Acts, when he talks to the disciples and he tells them, he gives them the command, right? Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Then in Acts 1.8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So as Jesus institutes his body, his bride, the church, we're going to be moving from Jesus' ministry to Jesus' bride. Because in order to operate as we need to as Jesus' bride, we have to understand how Jesus lived and how Jesus taught and spoke. And if we're going to be the church as God intended, if we are going to be the body as Christ intended, we cannot get this point wrong. We cannot miss out on this. We cannot think that greatness is determined by positions of honor and that's for us to ask or for us to choose. If we are going to be the church as Scripture lays out, if you all are going to be members of the body as Scripture lays out, you have to understand the importance of a servant's heart in that. Because if we approach, I'm convinced of this, if I approach the church with anything other than the heart of a servant, I'm going to be a detriment. If I approach you all, and the first questions in my mind are, what can you do for me? How can I get more attention? How can I be lifted up? If I look at you all and I'm asking, how can you all serve me? And I'm not beginning with, how can I serve you? I'm convinced I've missed the point of this fellowship. And I'm missing a lesson that Jesus has emphasized over and over again. And Jesus addresses it here. He says, they're arguing about this. And he says, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. This is verse 43. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And he uses two different words there. He uses two deliberate words. Diakonos and ulios. And these are two, he says, they must be your servant. Anyone who wants to be great, you want to be great? All right, then you need to learn what it means to be a diakonos. You want to be first? Okay, then you need to be the ulios of everyone, of all. And he uses these two different words, and that word diakonos, does it look like any word that we have in modern vernacular? What's a word that you hear in church leadership starts with a D? Board of D? Deacons? Deacons? This is where we get our modern word deacons. We get deacons from diakonos. This word means, you ready for this? 
It means to thoroughly raise up a cloud of dust by moving in a hurry to serve. Diakonos comes from the word dioko, which means to pursue. What have we said is going to be the culture that we strive to create here? We want a culture of relentless pursuit. We expect that this body will be engaged in relentless pursuit. The word for serve that Jesus uses comes from to pursue. And it's a form of service that begins with this idea of a pursuit of service. I mean, diakonos, to raise up a cloud of dust because you are in such a hurry to serve and to minister people. This is not, all right, fine, we need people in the kids' wing, I guess I'll show up, but you can better believe that I'm not happy about it. Church work day? Of course there's a church work day. Who cares about my yard? Fine, I'll be there so I don't look bad. But I'm going to move as slowly as possible so that I save my energy for back at home. That's not diakonos. Jesus says if you want to be great, then you need to be one who is in pursuit of serving others. You need to be one who has such an energy for service that they are raising up a cloud of dust in their eagerness to serve and to minister to people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put one of our elders on the spot in a good way. You know who one of the best people I've ever seen model the servant heart of Christ is? Joe Curry. The very first time I ever went to his house, and it's happened every subsequent time, so I know it wasn't a one-off, like he's trying to impress me, but every time I've ever been to Joe's house, the very first time I went to Joe's house, we ate dinner, we moved into the living room to hang out. I went to sit in one spot. And he said, no, 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 that's the best seat in the house. You sit there. And every time, we go to the, every time we go to the Curry's house, it's, oh, that's the best seat in the house. You guys sit there. One of you sit here. That's the second best seat in the house. The other one of you sit there. What can I get you? Man, I can go to your kitchen and get a cup of water. Like, no, no, I got it. You stay in the best seat in the house. That's the Curry's heart. They are eager. He is eager. When he has a company over to his house, there was an eagerness to give his guest the best. And it's happened every time. There is a pursuit of serving the person that he has in his house. That's the heart of diakonos. So you have to ask yourself, Sam, I have to ask myself, I've been asking myself all week, am I raising up a cloud of dust in my urgency to serve the bride of Christ? Am I pursuing? Not am I sitting back and waiting for opportunity? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll serve with energy. If you come to me, if you come to me and say, hey, here's how you can serve me. Okay, yeah, I'll step up and do it. No, no, no. Am I pursuing Dioko? Am I pursuing service within the body of Christ? This is what Jesus lays out. And then Jesus says, okay, not only must you be diakonos of everyone, you need to be ulios of everyone. Well, what's that word mean? That's a word for slave or bondservant. And it means properly, literally it means someone who belongs to another without any ownership or authority rights of their own. Jesus says, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? You want to be honored in my kingdom? Then you need to belong to the body without any rights of your own without any authority of your own. You want to be great? Then I expect you and I call you to be ulios of all. These are two very powerful words in that language. 
And we have to ask ourselves, is this the way that we approach the body, the bride of Christ? Seeking out, pursuing, serving the body. And not just doing it so that people are like, oh, I'm going to do it eagerly so everybody can be like, man, that's a really good guy. Like, look at him. Look how awesome he is. So that secretly I'm building myself up, right? And really, I'm going to serve in what's comfortable and easy for me. What requires the least amount of effort. Right? I, like, I'll serve on a Sunday morning when I'm already here by helping pick up trash after the service. Because that takes like five minutes. But it looks good because everybody sees me doing it. Right? Like, somebody in the church is moving and they need help with some heavy stuff. I really don't feel like giving up my Thursday afternoon to go carry a piano, right? Like, so I'm going to serve, but I'm still going to exercise authority over it. It's, we're going to serve. I'm going to serve on my terms. I'm going to serve on my time. I'm going to serve in ways that are convenient for me. Because at the end of the day, it's still, it's my decision if I help you or not. No, Jesus says, if you want to be great, then you need to be the ulios of all. You need to be the one who belongs to another, who has no authority rights, no ownership rights of their own. That's how you serve my bride, my church, my people. That's the standard in my kingdom. This is what Jesus lays out. And why does he get to say this? This is a high standard. Oh my goodness. And I don't do this perfectly. Please hear me in this. I, I am not a perfect diakonos of all. I am not a perfect ulios of all. I, I mess up at this. I'm striving. I'm, I'm praying. I'm, I'm pursuing looking more like Christ in this. But I don't do this perfectly. I don't expect you all to do it perfectly. But I expect us to be in pursuit of it. Because this is the standard that Jesus presents for servant for the heart of a servant. And why does he get the right to say this? Well, one, he's Jesus. We already looked at that he is, he is Lord. He is master of all. There is none like him. There's no one who competes with his authority. But what else? Why, what, what did he do that set this standard? Besides just laying it out, what's he say? Verse 43, But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great must be your diakonos, and whoever would be first among you must be your ulios of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that word, the phrase he used there, for, when he says a ransom for many, that word means a substitution for, in place of. So Jesus says, this is the standard that I am holding you to. I am calling you to be diakonos of everyone. I am calling you to be ulios of all. Why? For this is the standard that I modeled for you. This is the ultimate perfect example that I laid down for you. I came not to be served, but to serve. I came to give my life as a ransom in place of yours in substitution of yours. That cup that they were asking about, when Jesus said, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? It was the cup of God's wrath poured out upon sin. I deserved to be on that cross. That cross was meant for me. I earned that cross. I earned crucifixion. I earned separation from God. Jesus did not. 
the debt that I owed, the price that I was due to pay, Jesus paid. Jesus gave himself as a ransom to substitute for me. Jesus gave his life as a ransom in place of you. That is how Jesus served you. That is one of the many reasons why he has the right to say, then this is the standard I expect of you. A ransom is a price paid to redeem a slave or a prisoner. And make no mistake, this ransom was not paid to Satan. This was not, oh, well, you know, Satan is owed a debt. And I'm going to pay a price to Satan, and then I get to get you back from him. Satan doesn't control hell. Satan doesn't run hell. God is sovereign. Satan is destined for hell. This price, this cost that was owed, was owed to God in his perfect holiness. And Jesus paid that price that I have no chance of paying on my own to God. And this is what Jesus did. Leviticus 17.11, when you look at a blood atonement, his life was given as a ransom for many. Leviticus 17.11, and this is one of those awesome ideas and concepts that ties the whole scripture together where you see the truth of substitutionary sacrifice introduced in the Old Testament and woven throughout the fabric of the Bible. Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Hebrews 9 11 through 14 and verse 22. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. See, he's talking about the tabernacle. They were used to the high priest going into the tabernacle, the tent, and making a sacrifice for the people. The priest would enter the tent and make an atoning sacrifice for the people. But it was impermanent. They would have to do it again and they would have to do it again, and they would have to do it again. So he's using the language that these Jewish people would have been very familiar with, the idea of a high priest going into the tent to make a sacrifice. And he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest, then through the greater and more perfect tent he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, the blood of the atoning sacrifice introduced back in Leviticus, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So, so Paul, or we don't know Paul wrote Hebrews, but a lot of people do think he do. Some people think they don't. The writer of Hebrews, sorry, that was my mind getting distracted by Bible trivia. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, okay, so we've got this, this human high priest entering a tent made by human hands, offering blood of goats and calves, and that sanctifies, that sets apart, that purifies, that sets aside for holiness your physical mortal body, right? When the, per, when the, when the human priest enters into the human-made tent and slaughters a goat, that blood atones your penalty for now, and then they have to do it again. So he says, for if the blood of goats and bulls sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more if the blood of an animal offered by a human sanctifies your flesh, 
How much more will the blood of Jesus purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, in serving one another, we talk about being a diakonos to all, being a ulios of all. In serving one another, we are serving God. We have been set apart, we have been purified, we have been sanctified to serve God. And it's laid out clearly in talking about the sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. This body I'm in, these fingers that I'm waving, this is, this is like a scan of a scan of a scan of the new body that we're promised in heaven. So if the blood of a goat offered by a human in a human-made tent purifies this, the heavenly things themselves would better sacrifice it. It was necessary for that eternal sacrifice, that eternal purification to come from the eternal priest, Jesus, who gave his life, who served. He came not to be served, but to serve. How? By giving his life, his blood, as an atoning sacrifice for you, for me. And because of that, we are purified to serve God. Isaiah 53, 4-5, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. For my transgressions. He was pierced for my sin. He was crushed for my sin. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. We owed that price. Jesus paid it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus paid this price. Jesus modeled this service. Jesus served us. It's what He says to the apostles here. He says, no, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve by giving His life. He talked about, so then I expect you, I lay before you a standard to be a diakonos. One who eagerly, with energy, pursues serving others. You think you could describe Jesus' relentless march towards Jerusalem, towards his impending death, as a pursuit of servant? Jesus wasn't taken to Jerusalem kicking and screaming. Jesus didn't drudge his feet getting to Jerusalem. They didn't have to force him to get to Jerusalem. There was no guilt trip to get to Jerusalem. Jesus chose to the point where the crowds following him were amazed. Jesus pursued Jerusalem, knowing what was waiting for him. Jesus was a diakonos of all. Ulios, humility, laying down your own will, submitting to another, was one of Jesus' last prayers. Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus modeled being an ulios of all. Jesus modeled the service that he calls us to. This is the standard. I, I, I don't see any other biblical standard. I don't see any way scripturally around this standard. 
I don't see how I can justify anything other than being a diakonos of all and an ulios of all in my own life. Because one, it's what Jesus calls me to. Two, it's what Jesus modeled for me. And I mean three, and really these points are all, right, they're all in the same plane. Like one's not more important than the other. Jesus modeled this for us. Jesus calls me to this. And scripture's clear that in doing this, I am serving God. So if I allow myself to look at this standard presented in Mark 10, I, I look at this passage in Scripture where Jesus says, Sam, if you want to be anyone in my kingdom, then you need to be a diakonos and an ulios of all. I, I don't see any way around that. But this isn't something that's scary and intimidating to me. This isn't something that's like, whoa, that's too big of an ask, right? So if you're listening to this and you're hearing me say these things and you're like, that's too big. That's too scary. I can't do that. Remember what we've talked about so many times throughout this. It's not you. It's Jesus in you. It's life, life in the power of the Holy Spirit. But also, this is not scary. This, this is exciting. Right? There's the buzzword. I'm excited by this. Because talk about an opportunity to point to Jesus. Talk about an opportunity to show the world the heart of Christ. Talk about an opportunity to look different than the world around us. A chance to say, no, I behave differently than you. I pursue serving you. I am in such pursuit of serving you that I kicked up a cloud of dust sprinting down the road to be at your service. I lay aside my own authority. I lay aside my own opinion. I submit to you. I'm yours. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to love you. I'm here to be there for you. Why? You weirdo. Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. This is why I love, and this is your challenge for this week. <laughs> you ready for this? This is a fun challenge. Seriously, I want this to be another one where we share stories. I want you to read Hebrews 9 this week. Read Hebrews 9, and then I want you to serve someone in an unexpected way. I want you to deliberately, right, diakonos, pursue. I want you to pursue serving someone in an unexpected way. Ulios, lay aside your own authority, right? If your boss has assigned you, right, like, hey, this week I need you to, you know, uh, what's something simple? Or like, hey, this week I need you to go clean the whiteboards. And you clean the whiteboard? Okay. Like, you were assigned to do that. That's, that's not expected. That's you obeying your authority. Right? I want, I want this church body to spend this week pursuing with energy ways to unexpectedly serve other people. And if you're really feeling like going for it, I want you to combine it with another challenge from a previous week. I want you to proclaim the gospel to that person. So if that's, if that's daunting, I'd, I'd like you to do it. But, you know, if you're like, well, let me just start by maybe serving my spouse or my kids. Kids, if you're in here, where are the kids? How many of you have chores at home? Right, who's got chores? Anybody? Bryn's got chores. Right, like maybe Bryn, maybe you also do one of your sister's chores this week. Right, kids, maybe, maybe you do something that's not assigned to you. Maybe you do something that your parents haven't asked you to do. Right? Adults, maybe we do something at work that we're not supposed to to help another person out, even if it means I've got to put in an extra hour, right? I've got to give up my lunch break because I used yesterday's lunch break to do something for you. Maybe you start at home. Maybe you do something for your spouse. Maybe you do something for your kids or your siblings or your parents. 
but serve in an unexpected way. Serve someone in an unexpected way. But I also challenge you, serve a stranger in an unexpected way. Do something, like Dave Lane said, right? Shock them with kindness. Overwhelm them with grace they don't deserve. I challenge you to pursue serving a stranger in an unexpected way this week. And it can be as simple as, you know, let them go in front of you at Starbucks, right? Like maybe, maybe you're in Starbucks and you're enjoying your day and a mom comes in behind you and she's got three kids and it's crazy and you're like, you know what? Here, why don't you go ahead of me? Because obviously you're busy and distracted and I'm going to buy your Starbucks. I love doing random nice things for strangers because it, it, it's weird to them. Because it's not what they expect from this world. And many times when, when this happens, what I've found is people ask why. I mean, really, like you'd be surprised. I could tell you story after story of people who have said, why? Right? And the answer is to say, oh, let me tell you about Jesus. And then sometimes they're like, no, no, that's okay. I didn't need to know. But sometimes they're like, oh, what? Jesus? I had a guy, I had a guy in a bookstore one time, right? Where we're in the, we're in the line at the bookstore. And I was like, hey, you know, throw your books up here. He's like, well, why? Like, well, Jesus loves you. And Jesus calls me to love you. And, you know, maybe this, I don't, I don't know where you are. Maybe you're in great financial shape. Maybe you're not. But, you know, there's something nice I can do for you. Throw your books up. He's like, you're doing this because Jesus loves me? I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, that's pretty cool. Huh. I'd never heard that about Jesus. Okay. Thanks, man. I have no idea where that guy is. I don't know his name. We don't stay in touch. But amaze people. Amaze people with a heart of a servant. Amaze people with the behavior of a servant. Proclaim the gospel, the heart of Christ who came to serve. Because this is the standard that he has given us. And then the prayer is simple. Lord, thank you for how you've served me. I mean, God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for taking the ransom that I was due to pay. Thank you for how you serve me. Teach me how to serve in a way that reflects that.